Welcome to this very special event. I'm Sean Keaveney from BBC's Six Music Breakfast Show, 7 till 10, Monday to Friday. Give us a try, you might like it. Any listeners here? <laughs> Tough crowd. Me. <laughs> Tough crowd. Well, it's not about me, luckily. That's okay. Uh, I'm here to introduce, kind of already done it, uh, one of Oldham's greatest physics minds. The greatest physicist ever to come out of Oldham, apart from Jeff Forshaw. Uh, he's also one of the men that's done most to popularize physics and science over the last few years in this country. And I'm proud to call him my friend. Uh, he comes on the show every Friday. You should catch it. Um, here to talk about his new book, The Wonders of the Solar System, PBCOBE, Professor Brian Cox. Thank you. Can I just say as well, Actually, we should sit down, really, shouldn't we, make ourselves... We look like we're going to go any minute. <laughs> um, I know that Brian gives the impression of being quite relaxed, but he's quite a diva, and he got on the phone to me just before he arrived and said, I demand a sausage roll. <laughs> it's the kind of person we're dealing with. Cookies. Who, who are the people that won the Twitter competition? Are you at the front? Oh, oh did, well was that done. on your Twitter? Yep. The question was, I'll ask it to you, oh. it was how far to the nearest light hour is Voyager 1 away from the Earth now? Oh, uh, okay, 15. Nearly, 16. What? I heard a few 16s there, yeah, yeah so okay, very good. Yeah. So we've got a few bit of knowledge in here already. Um, now, first of all, before we go any further, I've got a book out as well. Um, R2D2 lives in Preston, the best of Toast the Nation from Friday. How many books have you sold, Brian, so far? Um, so I just heard the Wonders book has sold 50,000 copies. Oh, you which is not bad, is it? So, um, thank you. One nil. I believe they call that one nil. So let's crack on. <laughs> let's get into right. the science, shall we? So what we're going to do is we're going to essentially... It's quite sexy, aren't they? I must admit. If only you could get the Beatles on iTunes, then it would be great, wouldn't it? What a shame you can't get the Beatles on... What? <laughs> oh, you can. Oh, that's good, isn't it? What we're going to do is we're going to get Brian to read a few little sections from the book, and then I'm going to ask him a question about each. Then it will be a Q&A. So start thinking about questions you might want to ask Brian. But if you would be so kind, Brian, to just read our first little thing about the solar system there. Yeah, so I'm going to read just a couple of very short passages from each chapter. And this is the, the first bit. It's from the introduction. Um, our first half century of space exploration, less than a human lifetime, has revealed that our solar system is truly a place of wonders. There are worlds beset with violence and dappled with oases of calm, worlds of fire and ice, searing heat and intense cold, planets with winds beyond the harshest of terrestrial hurricanes and moons with great subsurface oceans of water. In one corner of the sun's empire, there are planets where lead would flow molten across the surface. In another, there are potential habitats for life beyond Earth. There are fountains of ice, volcanic plumes of sulfurous gases rising high into skies, bathed in radiation, and giant gas worlds ringed with pristine frozen water. A billion tiny worlds of rock and ice orbit our middle-aged yellowing sun, stretching a quarter of the way to our nearest stellar neighbor, Proxima Centauri. What an empire of riches, and what a subject for a television series. Somebody should make one. <laughs> they already have. Um, one of the first things I wanted to ask was, I wanted you to contextualize the solar system for us a little bit, because 
a lot of people I've spoken to over the years kind of, and me, I think, until quite recently, you kind of think of the solar system as quite a benign space, really, as a stable, still, benign space. But it's far from that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean one of the things, we, when we discussed the series initially, we wanted to um, put across this idea that our environment doesn't just stop at the edge of our atmosphere. Because it's very easy to you know, to, to look down, to not lift your eyes up to the sky, especially in a city like this. You, you never see the stars, you never see the solar system. So you can be lulled into a false sense of security in a way. You can, you can think that the Earth is just a stable place to be. And so that perspective that we've got, uh, since we began to explore the solar system, when we've begun to see you know, how unstable worlds can be. I mean, Venus is a good example. I mean, Venus, we think, was probably rather Earth-like in its early years, and then because of a runaway greenhouse effect, has turned into this hellish world, as I referred to there, where, where molten lead would run on its surface. But it's a planet that's in many ways Earth's twin. So, so we wanted to really have that thread, I suppose, through the series to, to say that, well, you know, planets are not stable things. They're quite fragile things. And indeed, solar systems are, are, are fragile yeah. things. And, and the solar system is essentially like a tiny little bubble in itself, just flying around the sp a spiral arm of our galaxy, one, yeah. of, one of billions of galaxies in the universe, isn't it? So when you think about it like that, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, astronomy... Crazy. astronomy. A scientific <laughs> term. Astronomy gives, it's, all, it's often said astronomy gives us perspective, but it, it genuinely does. I mean, one of the, if any of you have seen Cosmos, which is one of the inspirations for this series and one of the reasons that I became a, a scientist, you know, you'll see Sagan took a lot of time to, to link the discoveries that we've made of astronomy to, to not only to the Earth, to set it in its place in space, but also to, I think, make us feel rather more well, I don't know, humble maybe the yeah. word, actually. And Insignificant in a way, isn't it? No, but in a, in, a, in a good way. So the, the, the tiny blue dot is what he described us as, wasn't it? The, yeah, the, 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 I mean, the, right, uh, right at the end of the series, actually, the last episode, the last scene which we filmed back in London, um, this, we, I made this point that, that our exploration of the solar system may have made us seem small and in some sense insignificant. But in other sense, you, you, what we've discovered is that it's so astonishingly unlikely that a world as stable as the Earth will exist, you know, from, from what we know at the moment, that we should feel rather special and valuable yeah. as well. Well, to refer back to Arthur C. Clarke again, his, his take on it was we're either the only intelligent life in the universe or we're one of billions of intelligent life forms in the universe. Either way, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. So. Absolutely. That, he knows what he's talking. He knew what he was talking about. <laughs> we're we're going to move. We're going to talk more about other planets and things like that in the solar system a bit later. But we want to move on to another section of the book, which is about the sun. And you've got a little section to talk, to read there, haven't you? Yeah, I thought I'd read um, a little piece about the eclipse at Varanasi. Um, one of the things I wanted to do in the book, which extended the series, um, was to write almost a diary of some of the most astonishing things I experienced because while you see it on the screen quite briefly, I think, although it's a very, one of my favorite bits of the series, actually, the eclipse that we saw in Varanasi, I think there was much more to it that I could put across in writing the book than I could uh, in the time I had on the screen. So, each year, a million pilgrims visit Varanasi to bathe in the holy river and pray in the hundreds of temples that cover the city. Part of what makes the city so special is the orientation of its sacred river as it flows past. 
It's the only place where the Ganges turns around to the north, making it the one spot on the river where you can bathe while watching the sunrise on the eastern shore. And sunrise over Varanasi is certainly one of Earth's great sights. The humid tropical air adds a soporific quality to the light, which in turn lends a fairy tale quality to the brightly colored buildings and palaces that line the Holy River. It is a misty, pastel-shaded, dreamlike experience, as though the city is materializing not from the dawn, but from the past. But on the 22nd of July, 2009, at precisely 6.24 a.m., a different type of pilgrim was to be found waiting beside the Ganges to witness one of the true wonders of the solar system. At this time, across a small strip of the Earth's surface, the longest total solar eclipse since June 1991 was about to be visible to a lucky few. For three and a half minutes, the moon would cover the face of the sun and plunge this ancient city into darkness. I also wanted to say, actually, just before that, and there's a great quote by Mark Twain, which I also put in the book, about Varanasi, or Benares, as he called it. He said that Benares is older than history, older than tradition, older even than legend, and looks twice as old as all of them put together, which I think is a beautiful description of, of, of this quite magical city. Well, uh, eclipses are, are definitely magical. Did anybody here get to really witness the one, the, the, the eclipse in England about 10 years ago? Did anybody see that? I had a terrible job at the time, and I was in Wolverhampton, and I, 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 I got to see it through the sales girl's sunroof, through a sock, and it wasn't very impressive, but I was told it was a wonderful experience. Do you know, I, I, went to, I went to Cornwall to see it, because a friend of mine, had, he'd, his, his um, grandmother had seen the last one, which I think was 1909 or something like that, and, and so he'd always focused on this. He said, I'm going to book a house in Cornwall. I'm going to go and see it. And I went down with him into the house. And it was cloudy, of course, in Cornwall. Didn't see anything. Except that I also, um, I was in D-Ream at the time. Remember the band D-Ream? And uh, Pete Cunner, the singer, came down. And, and about, about two hours before, he, just, he was just in a really bad mood. And he just said, oh, sod it. I can't be bothered anymore. I'm going to get on a plane. I'm going back to London. And he just I felt <laughs> I had an argument with him or something. So he went and got on a plane at the airport and, and took off through the clouds and then watched the eclipse from the oh. plane. On it. So he'd had a tantrum and he was the only person to see it. What a genius there idea. But this, <laughs> this is it. The first question, the obvious question is, and I don't expect you to get too technical on this, but how, excuse my Anglo-Saxon, how the bloody hell do you scientists work out so accurately exactly where and exactly when eclipses are going to happen and how far into the future can you actually do that? Well, it's just Newton's laws, actually. So it's the, the Newton's law of gravity from 16, the 1680s. So you, you, although we have a more accurate law now, the, a more accurate description of gravity, which is Einstein's theory of general relativity, you don't need that accuracy. It's very easy to predict eclipses. So, so um, from the 1680s onwards, we've had the, the, the mathematical technology to predict them. The, you know, pretty much, I wouldn't say indefinitely, because one, one of the interesting things about the solar system that I alluded to earlier is that it's, it's actually not a stable system. So when you have more than two things, so the sun and one planet, absolutely stable, and you can predict the orbit forever. It won't move. But when you get more than one planet, it's called a three-body problem. And then, then there's a slight instability in there. And so there's a kind of motion you can get called chaotic motion where no matter how accurately you know exactly where everything is and exactly what time it's there, 
if you go on for long enough, then the motion becomes inherently unpredictable. So nine planets and, and all the asteroids, well, eight now, isn't it? Because Pluto has been Pluto is just a dirty snowball. <laughs> and the star. It's actually very difficult to predict into the indefinite future where everything's going to be. But over thousands and millions of years, it's not a problem. That is it. pretty incredible, really, isn't it? Let's be fair. And as far as the sun's concerned, let's just clear one thing up. Um, it's a pretty average planet, isn't it? It's middle-aged. It's quite stable. Star. What did I call it then? A planet? planet? Should I just leave now? Um, I meant star, obviously. Uh, it's you know, it's middle-aged. It's relatively stable. It's it's like a, a sort of star version of, of me, really, isn't it? Essentially, <laughs> it's just an ordinary planet, a uh, star, isn't it? That's fair to say, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's a yellow much. dwarf. It's called a yellow dwarf. Mm. So it's a fairly unremarkable. I mean, it's 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 one of the smaller stars one of the smaller types of stars you can get. But that's actually good, because small means that you burn your fuel more slowly. Yeah. And so the fact that it's going to live for about 10 billion years is related intimately to its size. If it were bigger, it would burn brighter, but for a shorter time. Could, a bit could, like yourself. Yeah, precisely. Kurt Cobain, Sean Keaveney. Um, that's the way it works. But uh, on that point, I, I always like to go here. What, what's the biggest star that we have found in relation to the kind of sizes that we can understand? How many sort of sun, our sun masses is the biggest star that we've found? Well, I actually don't know what the biggest one is. I mean, I can tell you about a big star, yeah. physically big, which is uh, Betelgeuse, or Betelgeuse, depending on how you pronounce it, which is the, the uh, top left red star in the constellation of Orion. And that's at the end of its life. So it, at the end of their lives, stars start burning, instead of burning hydrogen into helium, by the way, our sun burns 600 million tons of hydrogen into helium every second. So when I said it was kind of small and unremarkable, yeah. it's still burning 600 million tons of fuel every second. But um, Betelgeuse has reached the end of its life, so it's fusing helium into, into carbon and oxygen in its core. And when it does that, it swells up because it gets very hot in the center. And it's, now, if you put it where the sun sits now, then it would extend all the way out to the orbit of Jupiter. God so it's, it's, you can imagine the, the size of that thing. It's actually so big, it's um, 600 light years away, which is quite a way. Um, and we can see structure on its surface with uh, optical telescopes. So we've seen sunspots on the surface of Betelgeuse. It's so big. And, and again, it's worth revisiting just to, so we can all have our, the fuses and our minds blown that 600 light years is the distance that light travels in 600 years, which is about 188,000 miles a second, isn't it? Ish. 180, yeah, 186,000 miles a second. It's quite a long way. Mm. You wouldn't want to walk it. That's <laughs> for sure. Um, well, that's the sun. I, we, we're going to move on to the order of the solar system now. I think you've got a little piece to read about, about that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's a, a small introduction here to the, the, the episode that was called Order Out of Chaos, which was really about um, the way that gravity sculpts uh, planets and planetary ring systems like Saturn's. So the story of the solar system is the story of the emergence of order out of chaos, guided by the simplest laws of physics, gravity. The planets and their moons exist in relatively stable orbits because of a delicate interplay between gravity and angular momentum. And this beautiful natural balance is written before our eyes in the spinning patterns and rhythms of the heavens. So uh, explain a little bit about how a solar system like ours forms then. And we, we sort of generally know that it's a massive cloud of dust. 
and then it kind of co coalesces into something else. What, how, does it, how did we end up with gas giants at one end and, and us at the other end? Well, I, I mentioned uh, angular momentum there, which is a, a phrase that we actually did use in the series. It's one of those phrases you have to argue about with some BBC producers, because they think angular momentum and people will turn off <laughs> Coronation Street if you say that. But it really is, if you think about gravity, it's interesting, because gravity is only an attractive force. So you would think if you've got a blob of anything, then gravity is the only force that acts over long distances, and so it would collapse and continue to collapse. And that's indeed what happens with the star, and it continues to collapse until the star becomes so hot, because you're, you're collapsing the gas down, that you initiate nuclear fusion, that releases energy, and you get a pressure that holds the star up temporarily. But you might ask, well, how do you form something as structured as a solar system? How does a, a cloud not just collapse yeah. under its own gravity? And the other thing you get is spin. And spin is um, something that's conserved. Once something starts spinning, then there's no way of getting rid of the spin, yeah. essentially. And, and what, as you know, if you try and hang on to a roundabout, it's going very fast. What happens when something's spinning is you get an effective force, called a fictitious force, that acts the other way and tries to throw you off the roundabout. And that's the way that solar systems remain stable. So what you're seeing is a series of, of balances between gravity trying to pull things in and the spin, which results in this force trying to throw them out. And that's how you can get stable orbits. So there's only one force acting. It's kind of almost paradoxical, just a force yeah. pulling everything in. Equilibrium but is what... But you've got the spin, which, which forces you out. And just a little, just quickly on that, I was, uh, had a cappuccino a bit earlier. Flash. <laughs> and um, when you see the, the bubbles spinning around in a perfect circular motion like that, that's exactly the same physics as what's happening in the galaxy, isn't it? Yeah. It is, isn't it? The top of your cappuccino is the galaxy, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, it is the same. I mean, that's one of the things about, one of the wonderful things about physics is that the laws of physics are universal, which again is something we emphasized in the program briefly. So the laws of physics that you see in a, in a cup of cappuccino are the same laws that apply to the solar system, which is one of the reasons we discovered them. And, and so an intelligent life force now at the other end of the galaxy, billions of light years on that side, will be using the same, exact same laws of physics that we are, they'll just be interpreting them differently. Yeah, and when we know that because you can look at the light from the most distant stars, you can split it up, you can essentially pass it through a prism and take a spectrum of it, a rainbow essentially, and what you see is you see black lines in, in the spectrum of, of all stars, which correspond to the chemical elements which are there and you find that they're all the same. So you find the hydrogen here is the same as hydrogen in the most distant star. Helium is the same. And that means that the laws of physics are the same because the structure of atoms is intimately related to the laws of physics. So, so we can prove that the laws of physics are the same across the observable universe, at least. Incredible. So some 50-foot intelligent balloon with green legs <laughs> on the other side of the universe could be using the same laws of physics in a slightly different way to get the same results. That's how I see aliens. I don't know about anybody else. intelligent balloon. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. I was going to name someone then, but I didn't thought I wouldn't. <laughs> We're moving swiftly on. Probably an astrologer. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> to uh, to uh, Russ Abbott's favourite uh, subject, of course, atmosphere. Um, and you've got a little section on atmosphere. Let me help you, Brian. He's no, it's here. It's oh, he's got it. He's got it. 
You're going to read a bit from your book about atmosphere, aren't you? Um, yeah, actually, I'm going to read a different bit. Oh, going off piste. Uh, He's a maverick. This is from the Thin Blue Line, which is the um, episode about atmospheres um, in particular. And um, one of the most, uh, that, filming that was one of the most remarkable experiences for me because I got to fly in a, a lightning jet fighter, which is fun because lightnings, are, jet fighters are just fun. But actually, there's a picture there actually. You get to see that um, the transition from the atmosphere to the, to the darkness. And, and I realized what, for the first time actually, that, the, the, well not the first time, but I realized the value of engineering in this process because you hear a lot, certainly in, in, in the past um, few weeks when we've been arguing about government funding, you hear about you know, scientists and engineers kind of having arguments about who gets the most money. But you realize that actually the, the lightning, although it's a, a warplane, also is the thing that gives you the experience, gives you the, almost triggers your, the philosophy and yeah. the science. And that's always been true. It's true with the Large Hadron Collider. It's the engineering that allowed you to explore the early universe, the engineering that allowed us to go to the moon. So I'll just read, I don't know where I'll stop, but I'll read a bit about the, the lightning. I grew up with lightnings. In the 1970s, the lightnings were the aircraft every plane spotting kid loved. A piece of science fiction that would not have looked out of place in Star Wars. It was the fastest, sleekest, and most powerful interceptor on the planet. Up close, it isn't a delicate or balletic aircraft. Anything that flies at twice the speed of sound has to be solid no rattles or creaks. The cockpit is small and surprisingly high off the ground. You feel perched out on a limb, bolted securely and precariously onto two Rolls-Royce Avon engines and tanks of combustible gases and fluids. White instrumented dials and gray boxes and toggle switches labeled with a Cold War era font are randomly slotted around the ejector seats. Between your legs, which are attached by seatbelt fabric to automatic leg retraction systems to preserve your knees should you decide to kick out, is the control stick, barnacle encrusted with gun triggers and missile launch controls. It is, in short, a place that any kid with a bit of bottle would want to be. <laughs> which it's it not, is. It's not it's a bad old job yours, is it? Yeah. Actually, for the new series, we... Um, uh, filmed, we, we wanted to talk about the speed of light. This is Wonders of the Universe, which we're just finishing filming now. And we filmed in another classic jet fighter, a Hawker Hunter, which is actually older than the Lightning. And, and we broke the sound barrier in it. And it's not designed to break the sound barrier. <laughs> so you have to go up to about 40,000 feet and then just flip it over and point it at the ground with the engines on full. And just about you can get through the speed of sound. And the guy let me fly it, he was a, 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 a test pilot. And he said to me, I said, is it all right? If I, and he said, yeah, anything you can do to this aircraft I can recover from. And uh, we had the most, this is really Boise stuff, isn't it? <laughs> but we had the most, uh, the, we were talking to air traffic uh, near Bristol Airport, which we did it out over the Bristol Channel in case, I suppose, we stuffed it into the ground in the sea. And uh, he, he, gave, he said to, they said, you know, Bristol Air Traffic Control, hello. and he said, yes, permission to enter inverted dive from 40,000 feet in Hawk Hunter. And they went, um, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard that before. <laughs> Bristol Control Tower. <laughs> Just imagine him there with his, with his lunch <laughs> and his coffee, like, what? Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Should be fun. Never done that before. <laughs> oh, my, my dad let me drive uh, 
W. Reg Vauxhall uh, Viva on the <laughs> sands at Ainsdale when I was 13, so I know how you feel. <laughs> you know, it had a sheepskin. It was a gentleman's oh. aircraft. It had, had a sheepskin covers on the ejector seats. Brilliant <laughs> thing. <laughs> on the ejector seats. Yeah. <laughs> Do it in style. But um, So you, you go up there, you see the thin blue line, you see the atmosphere, you see that extremely fragile protection on our planet. Uh, again, just something that you discuss in the book and, and in, the, in, in the series, but just to give us a quick idea of the, the kind of things that, apart from the fact that we're in this Goldilocks zone, uh, with just in the right position in the solar system, so we get enough heat but not too much, what other things are giving, enabling us to have an atmosphere and therefore have a life and evolve into the incredible creatures that we are? Well, it's certainly true that we think that um, rain was important. I think it was we, we showed in the series that one of the things that rain does is it takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And then because we have uh, plate tectonics, so the different continental plates move, uh, there's a mechanism on Earth for taking carbon dioxide out, turning it into calcium carbonate, limestone, and then locking it away in the oceans. Uh, and eventually that gets returned through volcanic action into the atmosphere. So there's a very long-term carbon cycle, which is just right. So, so, so you don't get a runaway greenhouse effect like you did on Venus. So, so the, the more that we understand our planet's um, climate, the, the more we see that actually there, there are many fortunate and unusual things. That, I mean, obviously, the, the fact that it's the right distance from the sun means that the, the atmosphere is not too hot. Yeah. And, and heat is a measure of how fast things move around. So if it were too hot, then oxygen, nitrogen would escape. As it is, they don't. But the hydrogen and helium escaped. So, so you get beautifully balanced atmospheres, as it were. The, the oxygen is put into the atmosphere by plants, so there wouldn't be oxygen in there. And, and, and we've also got a, 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 um, an iron core as well, which helps, doesn't it? Well, yeah, so we've got a magnetic field, which needs a molten iron core. Uh, the, the core is molten partly because of the heat that was um, injected into the Earth, as it were, by the collapse, the initial collapse five billion years ago. But also now about something like half the heat in there comes from radioactive heating. So there's actually just enough uranium in the core to, to keep the core molten. And if the planet, again, as we discussed in the series, if the planet had been much smaller, like Mars, then it would have lost its heat to space more quickly because its surface area is bigger in relation to its volume. And then you, the core solidifies, the magnetic field goes away, and then this solar wind can blow the atmosphere away. So, so there's, a, there's a whole host of, um, I suppose you could call them coincidences, fortunate occurrences that allows the Earth to hang on to that line that we see there. So we're very lucky picture. to be here, and I'm not just talking about the tubes working. You know, in general, we're lucky to be here. And that explains something, because I was thinking, okay, five or six billion years ago, the Earth is created, a great tumult of gas and condensation and the, the very hot core. But when I cook a brownie, it's hot in the middle for a while, and then it cools down. But you're telling me, if I had radioactive isotopes in the center of my brownie, it would remain hot. Yes. And that's why we remain hot in the core. Yes. <laughs> I don't recommend that, by the way. It's not, it's not a good part of any brownie recipe. Um, so that's atmosphere. Now, we're going to move on to section five now, which is, I guess, we're talking about the individual planets a little bit and talking about, it's a bit of a smash hits question, but what your favorite planet is. Yeah. The solar system consists of three major types of planet, ice giant, gas giant, and terrestrial. These are produced because the protoplanetary disk has different proportions of rock and ice, depending on its distance from the sun. 
terrestrial planets develop closer to the sun, where the protoplanetary disk is mainly rock, whilst ice giants developed further away from the sun, where the protoplanetary disk is made of ice. So what you, what you see in the solar system is these, these different types of planet. Um, and actually, we, we don't know yet whether our solar system is typical of other solar systems around distant stars. So our solar system, we have Mercury and Earth, Venus and Mars, which are essentially the same. And then we have Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, which are essentially the same, the gas giants made of helium and hydrogen, primarily, primarily hydrogen. Uh, now, when we've discovered hundreds of planets, it's increasing every day around, around other stars, but you tend preferentially to see the big ones yeah. because they're easier to see. And big planets are gas giants, uh, always gas giants. So at the moment, we've discovered many more giants like Jupiter and actually bigger than we have terrestrial planets like the Earth. Because they're, they're literally just harder to see because they're, yeah, because they're very, smaller. very small. Yeah. Well, one of the really exciting things, I was going to mention it in com the context of atmospheres, is we're now at the stage where we can, see the, we can see the light from distant stars, and we can see it pass through the atmospheres of planets as they move across the face of the star. And that allows you to determine the chemical composition of the atmosphere of the planet. So it's thought that within the next decade or so, we, we may see planets of all the size of the Earth, but rocky planets with atmospheres. And you'll be able to analyze what the atmosphere is made of. And if you see oxygen in the, in the atmosphere, then it's almost certain that that means there's life on that planet. So we might de detect life on a planet around a distant star before we detect life on oh, one of the planets in the solar, solar system. system. On that tip, just quickly, Sunday Times. The planet uh, uh, around Gliese 1214, a small dim red star in the constellation of whatever that says, it appears to be composed largely of water and has a mass and diameter two or three times that of Earth. So yeah. this is the kind of thing we're talking about. Yeah. So we're finding this already. See how it's news to him. It's not bad, is it? Is that today? That. <laughs> See, I mean, this is it's a symbiotic relationship. I'm, I am an idiot, but I pick up the odd thing that I pass on to him. And uh, it's quite good, that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so it's a planet today. <laughs> it was discovered two or three times the mass of the Earth. So there you go. And, and uh, just a, a very prosaic question, but we've gone out of our solar system a little bit, but what, what's your personal belief as far as... Because obviously microbial life or small-scale life is more likely to be found, but what are the chances that we are going to find that there would be another civilization, i.e., um, a planet that has had the chance to evolve us, this, this level of intellect. What do you think the chances are that that's out there somewhere in the universe? Well, there's, um, there's a famous issue in physics, uh, astronomy, called the Fermi Paradox, which is named after the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, because he pointed out that, that our galaxy is obviously enormous. I mean, the, what, 400 billion stars in the Milky Way, something like that. And the Milky Way has been around for 11 billion years, maybe 11 and a half billion years. So there's been a lot of time, and there are a lot of places in the Milky Way for, for civilizations to rise. I mean, it would be, if it's easy, then it would be very unlikely that we were the first. Yeah. But you think what we could do in, move forward a thousand years, or a million years, let's say we stick around for a million years at this rate of progress, then these will be thinner <laughs> for a star. <laughs> but, um, but you can imagine what we could do. That, see, the, the Milky Way isn't so big 
that you can envisage as traveling around it and essentially colonizing it on timescales of thousands of years, or millions of years, certainly. So one of the big questions in, in this discipline of looking for extraterrestrial life is to ask, well, where are the other civilizations? Because there's been enough time for them to arise, arise and presumably colonize the galaxy if they want to. And so we look for signs of intelligent life out there, and we see none. Yeah. So it's one of the, that's why it's called a Fermi paradox, because it's very difficult to understand. I mean, one answer would be that it's very, very unlikely that intelligent life arises on a planet, which would, as we said at the start, make us astonishingly valuable, because we may be verging on the unique. Yeah. Right? That's one answer. The other answer is that civilizations don't persist long enough so they get to something like this stage and then destroy themselves by nuclear war or something like that. Um, again, that would put a large responsibility on us not yeah. to do that. So, so that, that perspective that this, this question gives yeah. you is very important. Yeah. You alluded to it, actually, at the yeah, start. Yeah. The, the answer to that question is, is extremely important. It's very valuable. The answer is you don't know. There's one signal. We, we also, there's a thing called SETI, where we search for extraterrestrial intelligence, where we look with radio telescopes for signals. And there's one signal called the wow signal that was seen a few decades ago. I can't remember exactly when it was seen, which has never been detected again and never been repeated and still remains unexplained. <laughs> Extremely exciting stuff, really, isn't it? Um, when you think about it like that. And we won't go into the universal speed limit being the speed of light and the fact that that means that nothing, even information, can't travel faster than that. And these massive distances means that it's impossible, almost impossible to get from one side of the galaxy to the other, even if you've got a Millennium well, Falcon. Not, I mean, not in, on large timescales. The Milky Way is about 100,000 light years across. And, and you, so, so you, can, you can travel across those kind of distances at, you know, half the speed of light relatively quickly compared to the age of the Milky Way. So the actual size of the Milky Way galaxy is not a barrier on timescales of hundreds of thousands of years for people to, to move right the way through it. Probably not in our lifetime. No. And finally, for this part of the, the section, um, we're going to move on to uh, section six, which we're, we're going to talk about life in the solar system. You've got a little bit on that. Again, I can't find the bookmark. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want I'll tell you what I'll read. I'll yeah. read a bit. Again, it's uh, off-piste. Um, the, another of the great bits of um, technology that I got to play with and use in the series was Alvin, which was, um, it's a submarine, which was built in the 60s, actually, which is one of the most capable submarines ever built. It can go down to four kilometers or more underneath the sea. Now, if you think about it, the atmospheric pressure, the pressure on, on, on a submarine increases by one atmosphere every 10 meters. Now, we dived two kilometers. So that gives you a 200 atmospheres pressure on the whole of this thing. So it's made of titanium. It's a titanium sphere. And, and it takes about, the whole dive took about eight hours. Um, it takes about two hours to get down and two hours to get back, which means that when you're on the surface of the uh, seabed, two kilometers below the surface of the ocean, um, you're, you're further away from the ground than the space shuttle is from the ground, because the space shuttle comes back from orbit more quickly than you can get up in Alvin, Boy. so it's an, it's an amazing thing. I'm quite claustrophobic, um, actually. So I, I wrote, again, this kind of diary style in, in the book. Um, on the morning of our Alvin dive, I confess to having been irrationally apprehensive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, irrational, because Alvin has a perfect safety record stretching back almost 50 years. 
but apprehensive because on the ocean floor beneath the Sea of Cortez, this little 4.9 centimeter thick titanium sphere will be subjected to a pressure 200 times Earth's atmospheric pressure and will be utterly isolated from the rest of the world. Alvin is not large or luxurious. Its living quarters are 208 centimeters, 81 inches in diameter, which is just big enough to allow three people to sprawl inside with legs partially intertwined, unless you can sit cross-legged for eight hours, which I can't. <laughs> the curved polished titanium sides of the sphere are exposed where racks of equipment and oxygen cylinders do not obscure them. Alvin carries enough air for a three-day stay under the ocean should rescue become necessary. The most exciting features of the vessel are three thick portholes that become beautifully and unnervingly transparent once submerged. Through these windows, generations of undersea explorers have gazed out across the ocean's most exotic and alien vistas. Wow. It's not something that most of us would choose to do over Saturday afternoon, to be honest, but I'm sure you saw some incredible things down there. It's, um, I mean, we, if you saw the series, you'll know, but we dived down to a thing called the geothermal vent, which is a, essentially a volcanic opening in the, in the ocean crust. And the interesting thing about these is that the life that lives around them doesn't require sunlight. Now, it may have required sunlight to, to evolve, so it may have been that you can't you know, that, that life at some point is related to some ancestor that lived on the surface. But now it's a completely self-contained ecosystem. And that's interesting because we think there are similar ecosystems on Jupiter's moon Europa, for example, where, where although the sunlight is incredibly weak out there at Jupiter, uh, the, the, the energy is there to power life. And we know that because we see that yeah. on Earth. And why is it important to find microbial life in the, in the solar system? Why is, it, why is it such a big deal? Well, the, there, are there are two things. I mean, if you find life on Mars, for example, which is looking more likely by the day. I mean, I think I, I read last week that one of the Mars rovers appeared to have got stuck in mud. Right, so there's you know, mud you need water yeah, for. Yeah. So it seems to have dri driven into some slush <laughs> on the surface of Mars, which is incredible. So. If you find microbes there, then there are two possibilities. One is that they evolved in the same place because we know that life can survive uh, interplanetary travel because we, we, we recovered space hardware that we've sent to the moon, for example, and, and found viruses on there, a cold virus, I think. I think someone sneezed on one uh, when they were assembling it, sent it to the moon. It got brought back by the Apollo astronauts and the viruses were still there and living. So we know that they could survive in yeah. interplanetary travel. So one idea could be that life evolved in one place, which may have been Earth, may have been Mars, may have been Venus even, and then got transferred because we know that material moves yeah. around between planets and the solar system. Or it could have evolved separately. So, so the, the, the interesting thing after you discover life on Mars, for example, would be to understand whether it's the same, it's got the same structure, DNA yeah. and the same biochemistry, or different. Wow. That would be very interesting to know. I mean, if, if, if it evolved separately, then you might be, um, it may be justified to say, well, anywhere that the conditions are right, then life must evolve. So that's a big question. It is a big question. Um, and it's bizarre to, to consider the possibility that we could all be technically Martians something worth thinking about. Um, that's that part over with. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to um, throw uh, look at some questions amongst you, the audience. So we've got a couple of guys here, uh, Billy, and uh, on the other side here, we've got, what's your name, sorry? 
Charlie, brilliant, who are going to come amongst you. Uh, so could you stick your hands up if you've got a question for Brian? Right in the middle there with the, with the gorgeous blue jacket on. Um, I read uh, recently um, an article in the newspaper that was um, basically saying in, in our lifetime there's actually a possibility of colonizing uh, Mars. Do you, I mean, do you really think that's a likely possibility? I, I hope. It's certainly a possibility that we'll go there. I mean, um, one of the people we, we met in Wonders of Solar System, actually, was the biologist who, um, we, who I took an ice core with, in, if, if you remember, in, um, in Iceland and found little microbes in it, a guy called Richard Hoover. Now, he's been at NASA since the 60s, and he knew Werner von Braun personally. And it was astonishingly interesting to sit there and chat to him over a beer in our little shed in Iceland, uh, many long, dark nights we spent there, about NASA in the 60s. And they had a plan to go to Mars by the mid-1980s based on Saturn V technology, so the technology that they used to go to the moon, which is amazingly clever, actually. They were going to get two Saturn V rockets and use the, the middle portions of them and, and literally tie them together and spin it so, so that you got artificial gravity. And they would send that thing to the moon. And it's clever because you get artificial gravity for, on the cheap. But also, you, you have a redundancy built in. So if you get a meteorite impact, for example, that damages one of them, then everyone can move to the other one. So you've got two spacecraft there. And, and they absolutely convinced they could have done that by the, by the mid-1980s. So there's no reason other than political will that we didn't go to Mars in the 80s. We could go now if we wanted. Colonizing it, um, I, I suppose you'd have to ask why you would do it, really. So, so my, my view would be it would be an astonishingly expensive thing to do to try and colonize Mars in the short term. But to go there would be astonishingly cheap in many ways. I mean, we know that the, I can't remember the exact figure, but I think Apollo was shown to provide something like a, something like a 10 to 1 return. I can't quite remember, but it was something like for every dollar spent on Apollo, 10 came back into the US economy. And that was from the, you know, the, the, the stimulus that you gave it in terms of engineering efforts, in terms of jobs that were created, and in terms of inspiration, which shouldn't be underestimated. You know, the number of kids that went into science and engineering and contributed to the economy as a result of the excitement of Apollo uh, was large, almost immeasurable. So, so yeah. We, the case for Mars is very strong, in my opinion. Colonizing it a bit, bit longer, I think. How, how long does it take-ish with a normal space rocket to get from here to Mars? I, I, I don't know what the exact figure is. It's, it's, it's about order a year, I think. I, someone might know. It's, it's nine months a year, I think. I mean, right. you, could... you wouldn't want to leave the grill on, would you? No, <laughs> that, that would be awful. Um, uh, down here, this gentleman in the black. Uh... Hi, uh, thanks for the talk. Um, so every day in the media, we're seeing more uh, interesting stuff coming out from the Large Hadron Collider. And um, what uh, particular aspects uh, are you looking forward to um, when they start ramping up the energies beyond three and a half TeV? Yeah. So, so the, the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, is currently running at half energy, which is the collisions are seven. TV in our language, that's terra electron volts. I could, I'll give you a definition. <laughs> Please. Well, no, you can. Yeah, <laughs> hang on. Let me feel yeah. this. An electron volt is the energy an electron gets if you accelerate it through a potential difference of one volt. 
So a 9-volt battery would give you a 9-electron-volt beam. So the LHC runs at 3.5-tera-electron-volts uh, per beam, which is 3.5-million-million-electron-volts. So it's like a 3.5-million-million-volt battery on each beam. Um, so at that energy, that might be enough, is the first thing to say, because it's still 3.5 times the energy of anything else that we've ever had. And one of the key things we're looking for is the origin of something called electroweak symmetry breaking, which in standard language is the, the time in the universe's life when mass appeared for the first time. So, so literally, when the, if you look at your hand, it's made up of protons and neutrons, which are made up of quarks and electrons that are going around the atoms. All those things have mass. And we're very sure that at a, around a billionth of a second after the universe began, something happened. Is it something called a phase transition? But something happened such that some particles got mass and some didn't. And the LHC is already operating in that energy regime now. So one of the answers can be the Higgs boson, which many people have heard of. That's a theory for, for what does that. If that's true, then you find Higgs bosons, and you can find them with the energy we've got now, uh, probably. Uh, if not, then whatever the mechanism is, you will see it, because we know where to look. So that's. Certainly, in the planned discoveries, as it were, of the LHC, I think that's the most exciting. Um, and you, you may, if you need the extra energy, then the plan is to shut down in about a year's time, upgrade certain protection systems, and then run at seven. But, but actually, uh, I could talk forever about this. It's actually <laughs> running very well now. It's, running, it's, it's, it's exceeding our expectations in terms of numbers of collisions per second m massively at the moment. So um, th there's a temptation not to, not to play around with it and just keep taking data, which is what we're doing, and keep looking. Um, th the last thing I'd say is that whilst that is the most exciting, so the origin of mass is probably the most exciting thing you could uh, in the planned discoveries. Um, things like uh, supersymmetry, which is a theory that may provide the answer to the question, what is dark matter? So what is a lot of the universe made of? Um, those things are also sort of there on the agenda, and in some sense easier to see than, than the origin of mass. So it's, it's, it is actually very exciting at the moment. There's a huge amount of data that we've got there. But you've already, did, um, the, just the other week, you um, recreated the, the, w the moments after the Big Bang, didn't you? With the, was this quark ion oh, yeah. plasma so, or something? Yeah, you can, so you can run the LHC. What we're talking about is running with protons, so hydrogen nuclei. You put, you put those in and you circulate the beams 11,000 times a second. They go around the 27 kilometers and you collide them together. Um, you can also put nuclei, complex nuclei in there. So we've been running with lead nuclei in there, which it was also designed to do. And that, that creates this thing called a quark-gluon plasma, as you said, which is like a, a soup of quarks and gluons, so subatomic particles. So it looks very much like the universe did about a millionth of a second after the Big Bang. And that's, in a way, different physics, actually. So it's almost the precursor of nuclear physics, whereas what we also do there is particle physics, which is looking for the Higgs particle and all that stuff. But the LHC is a multi-purpose machine and designed to be so. And you can smash anything up in there. The, the, the scientists on Saturday nights do it with Fiat Cinquecentos. <laughs> uh, a lot of fun. Um, another question from uh, the man in the Czech shirt. I've got one of them shirts. Very nice. I'll say nothing. <laughs> Sorry, just about the most awkward position. Um, you briefly mentioned during the talk then that you've got a new series coming out. I wonder if you could share maybe something about that. Maybe one of the interesting places that you went and filmed 
for the new series? Sure, yeah, it's, um, it's, called, um, <clears throat> it's called Wonders of the Universe. It was, it was actually um, commissioned before Wonders of the Solar System came out. It was going to be called Universal. So it's, it's different, actually, in some ways, in its scope. Um, it, it was conceived as a program about the laws of physics, essentially, and it still is that. So that there are four programs. One is about light, one is about gravity, but then one is about um, called stellar nucleosynthesis, so essentially about this story of the origin of the elements. Because back at the Big Bang, then we, we know that after about a minute, maybe two minutes after the universe began, the universe was entirely hydrogen and helium, about 75% hydrogen, 25% helium. That ratio actually is one of the key um, pieces of evidence that the Big Bang theory is correct. Um, so after that, then the, the heavier elements need to be created by stars in the universe. And so, so one of the programs is about the story, story of that. And one of them is about time, but about specifically about thermodynamics. So that's the um, area of physics that deals with why things happen and what, what's the ultimate fate of the universe. So, so it's, a, it's a wonders in scope. As, as we visited wonderful places, as you asked. We, we filmed in uh, Kathmandu in Nepal. We filmed in Patagonia and in Peru. Um, we, we've actually also focused on, on civilizations as well. We wanted some kind of grounding in the earliest origin of ideas. Um, so what, what actually one of the most fascinating, we, we filmed recently in New Mexico in a place called Chaco Canyon. Um, the reason we went there was because there's a record on a, a rock of a supernova, the last supernova, the last bright supernova in our galaxy that went off on July 4th, 1054 AD. And we know that because the Chinese saw it and documented it beautifully. But in Chaco Canyon, the, the Anasazi people, or the Chacoan people who lived there at the time, also made a painting of this supernova. And it's, it's almost certain it is of that for, for various reasons. You can simulate the sky as it was back then, and you, the map is rather good. Um, but it was um, remarkable because we, we found, I didn't know this, but that civilization only existed in terms of building things from about 1030 to 1130 AD. And they built massive mansions, these things, 600-room houses that they built. But there's bizarrely no evidence of them living in the houses. So they, they seem to have been, had some ceremonial purpose, maybe a religious purpose. And they're also aligned with various interesting things in the sky, like the North Star and the places where the sun rises on the, uh, the equinoxes and the solstices. So, so it, it, it was a, there's quite a bit of that come into the series as well, just because it... It's interesting. We found it interesting. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, it's a story about the wider universe, how we got here, how we appeared in the universe and the face of the universe. And do you, do you cover the freakier parts? Again, scientific terminology. Um, black holes, neutron stars. Yeah. Just, go, just give me a little, just give me a nugget about neutron stars. We, we, we do do neutron stars because That's they're good. part of the, the, the life cycle of stars. And neutron stars are astonishing because what you find, the, the reason that we don't, we don't collapse. You can ask the question, why is matter stable? Because um, again, stable? we've got gravity put, pulling things in. And, and actually, until the 50s or 60s, it wasn't shown, uh, it wasn't proved that matter's stable. There was a man called Freeman Dyson who initially proved it, who's still alive, a very famous physicist, worked with Richard Feynman for many years. And he showed that it's actually a, a thing called the exclusion principle that makes matter stable, which is a quantum mechanical effect that tells you that electrons can't be in the same technically the same state, so you could read for that the same place. Yeah. So when you've got electrons around an atom, they stay spaced out. 
because it's forbidden for them to be in exactly the same quantum state or place, essentially. But what happens if you continue? So that's the thing that keeps us up. And it's the ultimate um, reason there's this sort of force that keeps you from falling through the ground. So it's a quantum mechanical thing. But eventually, if you crush something so much under gravity that you're just really trying to force those electrons on top of each other, they give up being electrons. So rather than go into the same state, they collapse onto the protons in the nucleus and turn into neutrons. And then you get a ball of neutrons that stays up because neutrons don't want to be in the same place either, but that they can be a lot closer than electrons can because they're heavier, essentially. So, so you get this next stage in the collapse in the stability of matter called the neutron star. But it, quite amazingly, that wasn't shown to be true, that story, until the 60s and 70s, actually. Freeman Dyson actually famously said that the, he proved it with this ridiculous bit of maths that he says he, he doesn't understand now and nobody's understood <laughs> since. I forgot but someone it. showed, made, found a simpler proof later. But he's not very proud of his original proof because it's just nonsense. I think there's some for the, uh, scientists amongst you, there's some uh, number that you have to show is not infinite. So you have to, sh you have to calculate this stuff and you, and you have to come up with a number that isn't infinity to show that matter's stable. And he kind of got something like 10 to the 83 which is one with 83 noughts after it, which is fine, it's not infinity. But the real number is something like nine or something. <laughs> so, he got, so he was way off, but he did prove it. It's a, it's, it's a just an anomaly story. in his maths. Yeah. But just to, very quickly on that, a, a collapsed neutron star can be about the size of Manhattan or something like that, but have this enormous gravitational oh, yeah, they're, they're pull. So, so these things have got the mass of the sun and they're 10 kilometers across. That's the, ridiculous. The, uh, what, so you know, a spoonful of a neutron star would weigh how much? Yeah, it's an Everest-sized thing. The, the, other, the other great uh, fact, I think we use it in the show, is that if you've got everyone, every human on the Earth and squashed them to the density of a neutron star, then they would fit inside a sugar cube. Which is, <laughs> so it's That's dense. a good one. <laughs> yeah. um, I think we've got time for one more. One more question. I saw you first, this tall gentleman at the back with the glasses. Hello, and uh, thank you for your talk, Brian. Um, I have two questions, one of which you might want to answer, because you can select from the two. The first one is, if you could travel back in time to Barnes, at about the time George Osborne was picking up his O-level results, what would you tell him? Or, if you'd rather not answer that question... I could say it's impossible to travel back in time, but that would be a cop <laughs> I said right if now. you could. Not, but you so can't. Imagine, I don't know, you can travel yeah, faster than sea and that whole cone thing, whatever. I can, um, I can answer, answer that one if you want. Yeah. I mean, I think... Interestingly, uh, politically, I think a, a, a battle was won with science funding in, in, the, in the budget because um, it was kept flat, which is actually relative to virtually everything else is a, is, is a win. I mean, it will decline by the 8% over the next three years because of inflation, but there it, it was kept what's called flat cash. And I think that, although I still think that because our economic future depends on our prowess in science and engineering, that's, that's rather the, the least we could have expected. It, it does tell you that a, an argument was won with the Treasury, uh, and an argument was made, I mean, particularly David Willits, actually, who's, a, is, I think, going to be a superb science minister. He won an argument there, undoubtedly, because until quite close to the, the spending review, there, there, was gonna, there were going to be cuts in the science budget. And when you think that... 
just to give you one figure, about something like 42, 43% of our economy is what's called knowledge intensive. It's based on knowledge intensive services and industry. And we invest, what, 3.3 billion a year in the science budget, which is a tiny amount. Then, then the, 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 it's a big gamble to cut the science budget. So I think George uh, bought it to some extent. The test now will be, when the country recovers, uh, does, is that confidence in science maintained, and do we then begin to grow our science budgets again? Because it is, we are primarily a, now a knowledge-based economy as opposed to a manufacturing-based economy, well, aren't the, we? So. The, on the way to 50%. Yeah. Although a lot of that is, I mean, there's Rolls-Royce, AstraZeneca, there's people, so, so you know, that, that's included. It's, it's what you need scientists and engineers yeah. for. Yeah, uh, engineers, gotta love them. Um, well, we, could I think take, we could take one more question, can we just, because you were dying to ask oh, a question. Oh, well, really go Tiny one. Just a quick one. Tiny one, <clears throat> just a tiny one. Hi, um, what do you think happened before the Big Bang? <sighs> that's a great question. Good one. Good one. <coughs> Got him on the ropes now. Oh, we've run out of time. <laughs> Looking forward um, to this. It's actually a brilliant question because um, the standard answer to that, which is correct in a sense, uh, according to Einstein, is that space and time began at the Big Bang. Right, so that's the, the answer that you always will hear given. So time and space began at the Big Bang, then there's no business in asking what happened before because there was no time. <laughs> right? um, but that sounds like a, a cop-out. Um, it isn't, it's, it's the orthodox view. But there are, um, there's a friend of mine actually, Neil Turek, who's a very famous cosmologist who's now in Canada. And um, he works on theories that where the universe has been around forever because there are extra dimensions in the universe. So rather than there just being three dimensions of space like there are in this room and, and one of time, <clears throat> you can have other ones. And then you could imagine our world, our four dimensional world essentially, as a sheet like that. That, that, that floats around in a bigger universe. And you can imagine lots of these sheets floating around. And then what happens, and they've got vague calculations of this, what happens when they bump together is that they get hot, so they get heated up, and then they separate again, and they expand very quickly. And, and actually, the, what the observational evidence that we have about the early universe, what we know is that it was very hot and very dense, a long time ago, and very highly ordered relative to today. And then it's expanded and cooled and become less ordered ever since. And, and that works in these theories. So, so what we could be seeing as the, the hot, dense phase in, in our history, 13.7 billion years ago, could have been a collision between two of these sheets. So that would be one example of a theory that tries to address that question. And do we, are we is string theory intertwined with that theory, or is that just completely separate? Is that more of a quantum? That's theory? not a string theory. The string theories have extra dimensions in them by definition. They, they all operate in, in you know, the 10 plus 1 dimensions or whatever they do. But um, the, that, that doesn't require that. There are extra dimension theories that exist outside of string theory as well, and that's one of them. So. When people see ghosts, Brian, is it possible that what it is, in fact, is just two dimensions crossing like that, and you see like maybe an old woman with no head walking across your landing? That could just be two dimensions crossing like that. No. Thank you. <laughs> Forget that one. Okay, listen, um, you've been a, an absolutely wonderful audience, um, but I would very much like you to put your hands together and, and, and give a massive round of applause to the great Professor Brian Cox. Thank you.